Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, you're a guy who practices meditation sometimes, right? Well, I, I practice yoga, which entails a certain uh, amount of meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I have, I have dabbled in meditation, but I, I do not currently have a, a rigorous meditative practice in place in my life. When you've dabbled, which of the schools of meditation did you try? Ooh, you know, it, it was one of these where I just kind of ran up to the buffet of meditation okay. and, and tried what was, uh, you know, which steamer tray had been most recently filled and was available. So a little I, of everything. Yeah, a little of everything. I, because uh, I've tried some closed eye meditation, some um, some open eye meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, I've, yeah, some Montreroni and cheese. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, well, I've tried stuff that's more on the secular side and stuff that's that has more of a spiritual connotation to it. And uh, uh, I, it's one of those things where I feel like the first time you try it, especially if someone has convinced you that you need to try meditation or you need to try, like it's the same thing with yoga. When you're when someone tells you you need to try this out, there's a strong chance you are you are not going to really get it the first time. Mm-hmm. That you might even dislike it the first time, uh, but when you have time to reflect on what you experienced and then time to try it again, kind of at your own pace, then you can begin to see the value in it. You know, something I've noticed in recent years about the role of yoga and meditation in Western culture is that it has gone from something that's widely considered a kind of, uh, you, you know, esoteric practice to something that is almost kind of a, I don't know what you'd call it, like a, Sometimes it seems weird to meet people who don't do yoga. <laughs> I, I don't do yoga. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like everybody I know does yoga at least a little bit or, uh, or talks about the benefits of meditation. And I wonder if this is just, uh, something that changed. I don't know. When I moved to a bigger city, when I, you know, when I moved to Atlanta, I started noticing a lot more people were into meditation and yoga. But I, I don't know. Have you noticed this similar trend in the past five years or so? Yeah, well, I mean, part of it is urban centers are going to have more opportunities for this sort of thing. But there, there has been this steady influx of, uh, of meditative, yogic, uh, just kind of, you know, Eastern and New Age, uh, ideas in general. Uh, but it feels like these ideas have become mainstream in Western culture fairly recently. Like they, you know, they were there as an esoteric practice mm-hmm. in Western culture for some number of decades, maybe since the middle, late 20th century. And then and now they're just fully mainstream. You see yoga studios everywhere. There are meditation apps that everybody's talking about. They're, they've all got mm-hmm. on their phones. Biz bros are trying out meditation. <laughs> I know you've seen this trend too, right? Yeah. All, all the biz bro manager types are like, yeah, I use meditation to maximize my potential. Uh, you might not remember this, but uh, we had a yoga teacher come to How Stuff Works uh, in, in recent years, and he did a yoga class for the company. Uh, of which I was the only person who attended, but <laughs> this was years ago. You might not, I don't know if you were even, I don't think yet. I was aware of this. Uh, but he had a full list of his offerings and it included like yoga for golf uh, players, <laughs> uh, yoga for, uh, CEOs, that sort of thing, you know? Um, yoga, for, yoga for how to fire people. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. How to detach and all. Um, yeah, it, it is, it is interesting because on one hand, 
it's easy to look at it and say, well, you're taking you're taking something that maybe has more cultural value or more religious or spiritual value, and mm-hmm. then you're sort of boiling it down or you're you're stripping it apart and then selling those parts to people. Well, yeah, I mean, and whether you take a a spiritual or religious or a secular view of meditation, these are profound, meaningful cultural practices that mm-hmm. go back for thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly cases with, especially with yoga, where we don't, we're not always uh, aware of how recently they've been changed by by Western hands and Western minds. But yeah. um, I guess I was thinking specifically of meditation. Yeah, well, I, I, I keep coming back to this example when it comes to things like this. So uh, years ago, I was at like a dinner party or something, and I got to talking about, um, I, think, I think I was talking about Buddhism or something with someone, and Alan Watts came up. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with Alan Watts? A little bit. Yeah. So uh, the the other individual said, well, you know, Alan Watts, he's he's kind of the uh, the Walmart of Buddhism, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> and and I think she kind of meant it as a as, as a put down of uh, of Alan Watts. And I sometimes I think back to that. And and if you if you look at it with the idea that that Buddhism in this case has a central truth to it, a truth that should be shared with the world and or even you know wants to be shared with the world then don't you want it in walmart like you need you need there to be a walmart of buddhism you, you yeah. need there to be a walmart of yoga and meditation if you would all believe in the values of these things yeah so that's um th- that's sort of the question i was wondering about like if you are somebody who participates in in this deep uh long-rooted profound cultural tradition of meditation say you're a you're a monk or mm-hmm. something who does meditation as part of your spiritual practice are are you offended by yoga for golf? Are you offended by, <laughs> you know, the meditation app that will help you be a better business manager? Or is that or do you just say, yeah, that that's great. More pe- more people are taking it up. More people are seeing the benefits and it's going to more of the world. Yeah, I, I guess it's one of those things where it's the answer is going to vary from person to person and, and tradition to, to tradition. But uh, yeah, we uh, obviously would love to hear back from listeners on that uh, because I'm, I know we have a number of listeners who are involved in various uh, yoga or meditation practices. So when we're talking about meditative practices and meditation here, uh, meditative practices date back at least as far as the second millennium BCE. And, uh, and, and this goes back to the Vedic traditions in India. Mm-hmm. And since that time, countless models have spread throughout human culture, weaving their way through uh, Hindu, Buddhist, Taoist, Jewish, Christian, and Islamic traditions. Secular approaches range from elementary school mindfulness instruction uh, to meditation apps, uh, which you mentioned already, uh, from the modern tech-savvy human. Mm-hmm. And styles of meditation also range from stationary to walking, closed eye to open eye, seated to floating. Yeah, and there there are these major schools of meditation you've probably heard about, such mm-hmm. as like the uh, mindfulness meditation or the transcendental meditation or uh, compassion meditation. Right. And then, of course, there are different schools, uh, transcendental meditation being a, ma- a major one. Yeah. That's um, the one that goes to the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, right? Yes, correct. Now, I think it's worth noting, though, that at the center of all of these practices, essentially, is you have awareness. Uh, one of, if not the key attributes of, of human consciousness. We come back to that again yeah. and again on the show. So meditation, you could maybe think of as uh, first-person experiments in attention, something like that. Yeah, like I was, I was thinking about it uh, recently. Like it seems like it's nothing short of the deliberate manipulation of the human experience itself. I am changing my awareness, or I'm refocusing my awareness, mm-hmm. and in doing so, I'm kind of reshaping 
my world. I'm kind of reshaping my uh, my experience of reality, at least uh, in the short term. It's weird to think about how much of our lives we go through without intentionally controlling what we're paying attention to. Yeah. We just pay attention to whatever it occurs to us in the moment to pay attention to, rather than making a deliberate effort to concentrate our awareness in one way or another. Yeah, and it's one of the reasons I think everyone should try some sort of meditation or some sort of yoga at some point, like some sort of a mindfulness exercise, even if it ends up not being the thing for you. Uh, I, it, it, at times it can kind of like, I feel like it can kind of wake you up. It can kind of force you to realize, um, you know, what kind of noise is going on in your head at any given moment. One meditative thought that you introduced to me that I'd never heard before, but you brought it up on the podcast one time was just sitting down and Coming back to the thought repeatedly, I wonder what my next thought is going to be. Yeah. Since you mentioned this, I've tried it, and it's a really interesting experience. Cool. Yeah, that one, I believe that was an Eckhart Tolle uh, uh, idea. I mean, it's kind of a mantra in, in many respects, but a very simplified, boiled-down mantra that's just kind of like sticking a sticking a little uh, roadblock into your constant highway of mental traffic. Yeah, it, it has a way of uh, of calling attention to the fact that your mind is sort of this deep chasm th- from which things emerge without really you having any control over it. And usually this just happens to you and you don't notice it. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, I'm just thinking. But thinking about thinking makes thinking become very mysterious. Yeah, it does. Uh, it 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 forces you to, to, to reflect on your own uh, cognitive uh, processes and try and figure out what's going on there. Now, meditation, obviously, as, as everyone can tell from the discussion thus far, it, it touches on cognition. It touches on various aspects of of, of human health. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there have been a number of studies over the years that have looked into its, you know, its possible effectiveness on mental or physical health, uh, looking at exactly what it does, like what is the meditative, meditative state look like in the brain. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, there have been some some key findings that have certainly made the rounds over the years and sort of uh, forced people to 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 look uh, more closely at meditation. Uh, like one one study that uh, that made a lot of headlines was a 2012 study from the Institute for Natural Medicine and Prevention they, that uh, found that African-Americans with heart disease who practice transcendental meditation were 48 percent less likely to experience a heart attack or stroke. Yeah, so I want to come back to that claim in a minute. Uh, I've got complex feelings about the medical research on meditation, mm-hmm. which I, we were talking about this off mic before we came on, but um, I would not put them in exactly the same bucket with, but sort of adjacent to the bucket of prayer studies. Okay. Uh, meaning that both, I guess both fit into a larger bucket in this world of buckets, the, <laughs> the Russian dolls of buckets that we live in. Um, so when it, when it comes to these types of research, I think some skeptics would look at prayer studies and meditation studies and say, why would you waste your time? You know, what, why are, what, what can be gained from studying this? You can already be pretty sure it's a bunch of magical BS and it's going to be conducted by believers who are going to cut corners in their methodology to make their worldview look good. And 
so there's part of that I agree with and part I don't agree with. I don't at all agree with the idea of why would you waste your time because, I don't know, I, I think it makes more sense to be the kind of skeptic that says, well, bring it on. Let's see. Yeah. Um, if it gets good results and if other people can replicate those results, especially hostile people who are, you know, not part of this worldview, uh, can replicate the same results, I think that's something we want to know about. Yeah. And certainly if it's something that can be scientifically studied. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, I do think there's some merit to the idea that things like prayer studies and meditation studies require some careful scrutiny before we accept their results because there are some people who are convinced of the results before they start looking for them. Now, that's definitely not true of all meditation researchers, I think. Right. Yeah, I mean – I mean, for starters, with prayer, there it seems like that's more likely a, a problem because there's not really much in the way of secular prayer out there. Right. I feel like for the most part, if you are praying to a, a deity or a group of deities, you have some level of belief or you're taking on some level of belief in those deities. Though I think you could come up with secular explanations for the success of prayer. Oh, like certainly, if you, yeah. if you had prayer studies that worked, I think that wouldn't necessarily prove any kind of magical thing. Mm-hmm. It would just say, well, prayer has some kind of benefits and you could explain that in terms of psychology, of group social dynamics, all kinds of things. Yeah. But again, to, to, I mean, to your point, there are plenty of models of meditation that, that don't involve belief in a deity or belief in some sort of uh, – you know, particular model of bodily energy or, you know, some other kind of like new age uh, mechanism. Yeah, absolutely. And in a minute, we're actually going to air a an interview Robert did with a local meditation researcher. Uh, what is this researcher's name, Robert? Uh, this is Dr. Jennifer Mascara, and uh, she's an assistant professor of family and preventive medicine at Emory University here in Atlanta. And she investigates meditation from a secular scientific standpoint. Yes. So that can absolutely be done. But coming back to these medical uh, effects, that people claim are demonstrated by meditation. I I don't want to rule them out, and I think research on this is valid, and I think we should pay attention to it, but I think it, it does deserve scrutiny because coming back to that one result you mentioned about uh, heart disease and transcendental meditation, I found an American Heart Association scientific statement from 2017. It was actually just released this year. Uh, so first, a general comment they make, quote, Further research on meditation and cardiovascular risk is warranted. Such studies to the degree possible should utilize randomized study design, be adequately powered to meet primary study outcome, strive to achieve low dropout rates, include long-term follow-up, and be performed by those without inherent bias in the outcome. So generally they're saying that it, uh, it does appear that there could be some some good places to go with mm-hmm. meditation and cardiovascular health research, but a lot of the studies that exist today have some of these problems with methodology that make them less robust or convincing than they could be. And uh, referring to that 2012 study about cardiovascular health and transcendental meditation, they say, quote, the study, though, was conducted in two phases after a one-year hiatus with 58 patients not participating in phase two of the study and some concerns about analysis analysis of the data have been raised. So it sounds like that when you get this big claim like this, wow, you know, you get these amazing results from transcendental meditation, they're saying, okay, the, the, we, we might want to be cautious about over-interpreting these study results because the methodology was less than perfect. Right. And and as consumers, uh, we have to be careful about sort of having the, the red wine or chocolate effect with studies like this where right. we like red wine or chocolate. Yeah. And then when a headline comes up that supports the thing we like, we just kind of uh, – 
we, we kind of uh, check it off in our mind and move on. Well, yeah, and to be cautious about those studies is not to say that red wine and chocolate do not have their uh, their wonderful benefits in terms of flavor and enjoyment. Right. And the same thing could probably be said about meditation. I would say even if you don't find that meditation has any measurable cardiovascular benefits or anything like that, benefits on long-term chronic health conditions or mm-hmm. pain reduction or anything like that, it still obviously has this role in people's lives that, you know, people get immense pleasure from it. They find that it changes the way they view the world. It, it does do something, even if it doesn't do everything people claim it does. Right. So ultimately, I, I think meditation research is a highly valid field of study. And I, and I wouldn't be surprised if it turned up really effective results, but I also think it's a field where I would I would just tend to treat claimed results with special caution and scrutiny. Not a fault of meditation itself, nothing wrong with the practice of meditation, but uh but but I but I always try to be cautious whenever I see a new claim about meditation results. So I recently partnered with uh, videographer and audio producer Tyler Klang here uh, at the office on a couple of interviews for a meditation video project. Now, company priorities changed and that kind of left the project in limbo, but I didn't want to lose the the great content we'd already achieved. So we're going to feature some interview content with Emory University meditation researcher Dr. Jennifer Mosquero and with the physician Vedic meditation teacher Jill Weiner. Uh, this will also enable us to, to finish the video in some form, and you can look for that in the near future. Obviously, we'll put that up uh, on stufftoblowyourmind.com uh, and, and uh, also on the social media platforms. So let's go ahead and introduce Dr. Jennifer Mascaro here. Uh, again, she's Assistant Professor of Family and Preventive Medicine at Emory University here in Atlanta, where she's uh, also worked with the Department of Anthropology. She specializes in the variation in and plasticity of human social cognition and the biology of of interconnectedness. She recently came into the studio and chatted with us about the current state of meditation research and her own fascinating contributions to the study of not only mindfulness meditation, but compassion meditation. Robert, I want to say I enjoyed this interview and I thought Dr. Mascara was great. Awesome. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will just jump right into the interview questions with Dr. Mascara. All right, we're back. Hi, Dr. Mascara. Thank you for uh, joining us here. So my, my first question is just broadly speaking, what's the current focus of your research at Emory? Yeah, a lot of the research that we're doing is on different meditation practices that we think have the most evidence for impacting people's well-being. Um, and so in particular, we're looking at two different types of meditation. So one is called mindfulness meditation. And that's actually what most people think of when they hear about meditation. Um, but we're also doing a lot of research on a compassion meditation practice that comes from a very old Tibetan Buddhist tradition um, and is thought to cultivate feelings of connectedness with others, um, feelings of compassion and empathy for others. And, and it turns out that that's really good for our well-being. So what's your personal history with meditation? I uh, started dabbling primarily with mindfulness meditation back when I was in high school. I was a really serious athlete, and um, it turns out that mindfulness meditation is really helpful for um, mitigating stress and anxiety, especially when you're um, performing. And so I used to do uh, mindfulness practices when I was anxious about a big game or, you know, in the aftermath, if I felt like I didn't perform very well, it was really helpful for not um, ruminating. Um, And so I, I dabbled here in there. Um, but then, uh, it really, it, um, 
took a new direction when I started graduate school and I was interested in the plasticity of the brain. And here, you know, we have these practices that have been um, uh, cultivated and perfected um, over, you know, many, many hundreds of years that we think impact the brain and systems in the brain that I was really interested in studying. And so um, I really um, turned from being a, a dabbling practitioner to really more uh, of an uh, at least hopefully objective scientist. So how do you go about conducting hard scientific research on something like meditation? We try to do research on meditation similar to the way you would do research on, for example, a drug or any intervention. So the gold standard is with a randomized clinical trial where you randomize some people to the meditation practice that you're interested in, and you have a, another group that's randomized to some control group. Um, the ideal study design has, a, you're comparing meditation to an active control group. Uh, and the reason for that is because there are a lot of um, things about uh, an intervention that could be helpful, could change people that aren't due to the meditation practice itself. You know, if it's a group practice, it may just be meeting with a group of people that you think are like-minded. Maybe meeting with a, a teacher, like a meditation teacher, is really helpful because you you have someone to, uh, you know, a role model. There could be non-specific things that are kind of doing the work. So you really want to try to control for those types of things. So um, one of the big ways that meditation is studied is with that sort of design. Another thing, though, that people do is um, they point out that that misses a lot of the cultural um, and con contextual factors that often accompany meditation. So some people, um, and I think this is really important research too, um, are doing research where they're really doing more qualitative research to try to dig in and understand um, what meditation means to people when they practice it. What are the, fa the, the sort of contextual factors, the, the cultural factors that, that might be um, at play. So you're talking about stripping away some of the ritualized cultural aspects to understand what's actually taking place in the body and mind. But isn't the counter argument that you can't separate these two aspects of meditative practice? Exactly. And that's a, an issue that accompanies a lot of different scientific domains. Um, you know, when you try to take something and put it in a laboratory setting to study it, you necessarily strip it from, of um, extraneous features that might be really important. Um, and so that is a debate that happens in a lot of domains of science, but it's particularly important with meditation because there are these um, uh, sort of cultural embedded factors that might, that are likely very, very important and maybe the most important. So you um, are often, the, the researchers who study meditation are often sort of straddling this difficult question of trying to, um, to empirically study a practice in the best way they can, but all the while not removing and reducing it to something that is um, less than, uh, than what it really is. Now, in at least one of your studies, you even go so far as to avoid calling it meditation, right? So, um, exactly. One of the challenges when you do meditation research is you don't want to bias people um, at the outset. Uh, you don't want to bring people in and and um, and uh, sort of enhance the 
placebo effect, essentially. Um, uh, and so with a lot of our research, we really try to reduce some of the terms that we use that might uh, convey a, a bias to our participants. Um, uh, and then the other thing is meditation, even though we talk about it here as being secularized and sort of stripped of its religious connotations, it's really impossible to, to, to do that. And so um, there are a lot of populations for whom that term, um, you know, it comes with some baggage or some uh, connotations that may dissuade them, people from, from practicing or change the way they, um, they sort of interpret it or, or accept it. And so um, we, we try to minimize that the bias in our participants as much as we can. And so one of the ways we do that is to sometimes we don't even call it meditation. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, Emory benefits from a partnership with Tibetan monks. Uh, how do you incorporate traditional meditation practitioners into the research? Yeah, that's crucial. And that's one of the really exciting things about this research is this sort of partnership between scholars of a lot of different areas that are really coming together to try to understand uh, a rich tradition in uh, the richest way that they can. And so um, we have a, sort of a constant dialogue with those contemplative practitioners to try to understand um, the historical tradition, um, the, the textual tradition, uh, and the monastic tradition. You know, um, those are all those are three different things that have um, a real bearing on what we're studying, and and it, it's impossible for scientists and scholars to have expertise in all the, those domains. And so it's it's really uh, kind of a fun part of what we do is a dialogue with um, the the. Um, the Tibetan practitioners that we get to work with. Whether dealing with a traditional Eastern model or a modern Western model, I think there's a tendency to see meditation as an exercise in shutting out the world. But as you already said, uh, empathy plays an important role in many meditation traditions as well. Can you tell us about the Tibetan practice of Lojong? Right. Yeah. So so we look at a, a compassion meditation practice that emerges from the Lojong or mind training tradition. Um, and that is a tradition that... Um, places uh, a heavy emphasis on compassion. I mean, that is uh, um, one of the ultimate goals is to be a, a being of, of compassion. And so these are practices that are thought to help us feel compassion, not only to the people around us that um, we often feel compassion for, but um, to others that we don't know and to people that we often have difficult challenges with. And so um, that's not one of the preconceived notions that we often have about meditation. Often when the word meditation comes up, it's about um, focus and attention, and often it, it um, becomes a tool of achievement. Um, but this is a tradition where um, cultivating compassion for others was of, uh, of the utmost importance. And um, within that monastic tradition, the practices uh, were really um done quite often to benefit others, not not to benefit oneself, not to reduce stress or anxiety in oneself, but to benefit others. What have you learned from your research thus far? Can, can meditation actually rewire our neural circuitry for empathic behavior? Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Um Taking our research and coupling it with the incredible research that's coming out of other um, other universities, I think it's it's safe to say that these practices, compassion meditation practices, loving kindness meditation practices, uh, and even mindfulness, there's evidence that mindfulness impacts our social connections with others, um, and. Uh, the, this research really suggests that um, that we can 
um, augment the systems in our brain that help us connect with others, that help us read others' emotions. Um, and then when you do that, it's very clear that there are huge health benefits. So one of the emerging um, lines that is connecting a lot of domains of health research is the incredible importance of our social relationships. Um, our social relationships impact the way our immune system functions, the way our stress system functions. And so as soon as you are able to bolster a feeling of connectedness, a feeling of sort of interdependency with others, um, you uh, you really do change the, the way you respond to the world around you, and, and you, it, it becomes less threatening. It changes our body and our brain. You also used fMRI in this study. Were you able to observe the effects of meditation in a subject's neural activity? We did. So um, there are two different ways that you can use functional MRI to study meditation. So you could have people actually meditate in the fMRI scanner and see what their brain is doing while they meditate. Um, But we did a slightly different thing. We had people practice meditation for several weeks, and then we wanted to see how that changed the way their brain uh, uh, functioned when they did certain important cognitive tasks. Um, And we found that um, when people practice compassion meditation, they actually got more accurate when they read other people's facial expressions. So what we did was we showed them photographs of the eye region of people's faces, and we had them judge what they thought the person was thinking or feeling. And after the meditation training, they actually got more accurate. Their scores went up. And then the activity in the systems in the brain that are important for doing that, um, for reading other people's facial expressions, the activity in those regions actually increased as well. So do you think meditation in the form of cognitive-based compassion training can be used to boost empathy in, say, uh, uh, an actual psychopath? Yeah, it's such an interesting question, and it's one we immediately thought about when we found um, the results of our first study where we were seeing this effect on people's ability to read facial expressions. You immediately think of populations of people that may benefit, so children um, or clinical populations that really seem to struggle with these types of social interactions and, and social skills. Um, it's we, we haven't done any studies with clinical populations in that way, um, so it's definitely too early to say. The other thing that I think is a really interesting and important um, direction for meditation research to go is really to try to understand whether there are um, differences in how amenable different people are to actually practicing. And what I mean is um, it, it, there's a real likelihood that um, – there's a bit of a catch-22 where the people who might benefit most from something like cognitively-based compassion training may actually really struggle to do it or it may not resonate with them. They may not understand it. Um, And so I think that's particularly important when we turn our attention to clinical populations. It may be that the populations that would really benefit the most or or could really um, stand to benefit from something like uh, compassion meditation or mindfulness meditation, they actually may have a real difficulty with, with doing it. So some brains are going to be a little more susceptible to meditation than others. Well, that's the hypothesis. Um, there is a little bit of evidence now. Um, we did. Uh, we have one study where we found that um, people's uh, brain activity that related to empathy actually predicted how much they would engage with the training. In other words, people who had a, a brain that seemed to be more empathic at the outset actually practiced more. Um, and that does suggest to us that there may be some populations of people 
that take to meditation more, that uh, may find it easier or it may resonate with them. And conversely, there may be populations of people where, for whom it, it's really a struggle. They may not understand or, or may um, not resonate with them as much. Exactly. So what does cognitive-based compassion training look like and, and, and what does it feel like? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it's it's quite different, actually, than the mindfulness meditation practices that are often talked about in popular media. Um, but it actually does start with a little bit of mindfulness practices. So the first segment of, uh, of CBCT actually is the goal is to entrain attention. Um, and so there, it start, begins with some mindfulness to the body, mindfulness to the breath, and then mindfulness to sort of everything, all, all the thoughts and sensations that stream throughout our, our mind constantly. Um, but pr- pretty quickly, you know, the goal there is to, to just sort of cultivate this awareness so that we can move on to the compassion components. And, and um, what it uh, does from there is it begins with um, uh, an appreciation for our um, our ability to be more compassionate, our ability to um, cultivate the positive mental skills that we have, and, and a, um, a compassion for ourselves as humans that these things are difficult. Um, and then it moves from there to discussions of and, and deep contemplation of uh, our interconnectedness with others. So um, you might think deeply about people in your life and um, how much we rely on them, even people that we don't think of very often as being very important to us. Um, when we really get down to it, we rely on so many people in our lives for essentially everything. Um, and then we move on to a, an awareness that um, all of those people that we're interconnected with, interconnected with, um, they are at base so similar to us. Um, we are also similar in um, wanting well-being for ourselves and for our loved ones and, and really wanting to, to um, be free of, of distress and, and suffering. And um, those recognitions are quite powerful. The recognition that we are so connected with one another and that we are at base so similar to one another. Um, the thought is that from there emerges a, a natural compassion and empathy for, for those around us. Broadly speaking, what sort of strides have been made in meditation research over the past 25 years? Meditation research has um, come a long way. So when it started um, uh, 25 years ago, it was not in the mainstream. It was uh, really the, the pioneers of meditation research really had to do a lot of it kind of in the back room on the hush-hush. It was not considered rigorous science or, or rigorous health, um, uh, you know, a rigorous subject of, uh, to study. Um, uh, but uh, since then, the, the, those pioneers have really demonstrated, uh, especially in the case of, of mindfulness meditation, uh, how uh, powerful uh, some of these practices can be, how um, if for a lot of different domains, both for um, reducing suffering, so reducing depression and anxiety, but also for enhancing um, the positive things like resilience. Um, and as soon as some of that research started to get out and started to be conducted really rigorously, um, it started to be taken more seriously. And so when it is taken more seriously, doors open up. So more research funding goes into, you know, big studies with lots of people. And all of that has a, a snowballing effect because we're able to ask um, more nuanced and better questions. We move from just um, really clunky questions like, is med- meditation good for us? To, you know, better questions like, what is it good for? Um, and 
are there potentially negative effects? You know, could it be that there are some situations in which meditation is harmful? We start to get a, um, a, a, a better tool for, for really studying these things in a better way. So that's kind of how I see it is um, evolving over the last 25 years. In the paper, The Neural Mediators of Kindness-Based Meditation, a Theoretical Model, you mention that two factors are necessary for empathic response, a shared affective experience and a cognitive understanding. How do these come together in empathy, and what happens if either component is missing? The idea is out there from the um, amazing social cognitive neuroscientists that have moved this field forward that there are these, um, that, that when you look at empathy as we define it, um, as, as scientists define it, it does seem to have a, a few different components. And so, uh, in particular, those do seem to be, um, sort of a shared resonance and ability to, um, essentially try on someone else's emotions. But at the same time, there has to be some sort of cognitive awareness that those emotions are, you're feeling them because uh, someone else is feeling them. They're not necessarily just your own emotions, but um, you are recognizing them in someone else. Um, and so uh, how that plays out is, I think, the million-dollar question, because those seem to be really um dynamic processes. Um, they, they're talked about as different systems in the brain that allow us to do those different things. And it's quite likely that um, those uh, skills sort of interact where, you know, sometimes you may very cognitively um, attend to someone and then the emotions follow, or quite often it's probably the reverse. So there, there's probably a very dynamic um complex interplay going on to uh, that, that probably differs in every experience. You know, every we think of the times we empathize with someone, it, it's it's not the same every time, you know. Um, and so I think there's a, a really dynamic process going on there. But one of the, um, to your second question, one of the um, pieces of evidence that scientists look at to suggest that there, there, that there are these different components is that it does appear that there are clinical um cases in which one is missing but not the other. And so this is not cut and dry, but um, you mentioned uh, psychopaths. And there is a, a large bit of agreement that psychopaths tend to um, really be missing more the affective sort of resonance component of empathy. Um, they often do okay on the more cognitive um, uh aspects of empathy and and the, the deficits really seem to be in their ability to to mirror someone's um uh emotions especially negative emotions um they they really seem to not ha um resonate with others anxiety and fear and suffering the way we do um and then there are other clinical uh domains uh Autism is often brought up where there's a, a different picture of what's going on. Um, there may be more of the sort of cognitive piece that is that is problematic there. And they, they may actually um, do quite well at, at taking on others' emotions, maybe even too well. Um, so there's it's not a cut and dry sort of situation, but it does look like um, there are different clinical domains in which one or the other is more problematic. And that tells us that these are... Um, uh, at least just slightly discrete systems that are um, not completely synonymous. Now, when you explain it like that, I can't help but wonder how it all shakes out in, in my own head. Like how much of 
how much of it is column A, how much of it is column B, and, and how does it come together? Right, yeah, and then there are there's a new movement of, of thought out there that um, there, there are some scholars that are arguing that we should put aside, push aside empathy altogether because what really uh, translates into compassionate behavior is not those things, but um, our morals and our ethical code and, uh, and some of those types of things, and, and that's a whole other domain completely. Um, but there is some uh, dynamic interaction that occurs between those components that allow us to, to empathize and then our, um, uh, our deep-seated sort of ethical, moral, and cultural codes that help us translate that into action. So tell me this. Do you think the world would be a better place if everyone practiced meditation? Most of the things that we do in meditation, so whether that's mindfulness or compassion meditation, um, I think the reason that they're so impactful is they're very different from the things that we generally get sucked into doing in our day-to-day life. And um, so um, uh, it, it's especially in our... Um, you know, fragmented, incredibly busy uh, lifestyle here in, in the, the sort of modern West, um, we are often disconnected from that interdependency and, and notions of interdependency that are quite obvious when we're able to take some time and look each other in the eye. Um, and so taking the time to, to reconnect with those sorts of feelings and thoughts uh, I think would be very powerful and very powerful for everyone. Um, uh, there are a lot of different meditation practices out there. And so I think the next, the way that this field is going, the next step for the field of meditation research is really to try to understand which practices benefit whom and for what. And, and um, so that will better help us answer the question of should everyone do mindfulness meditation? Should everyone do compassion meditation? Or is it that some people could benefit more from one or the other? Um, we're all busy people and we don't have time to do everything. Um, but, uh, but anything that can help us feel more connected and, and look at one another in the eye and, um, and notice our shared humanity, I think that would benefit all of us. For your own part, uh, what is the meditative state like, and what do you feel you gain from it personally? Yeah, um, so, you know, I grapple with a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, from the day-to-day, and so I notice that it casually impacts me all the time, you know. Um, well, I shouldn't say all the time, maybe not as much as it, it should, but there are many times where, you know, I'm in traffic and someone cuts me off and I behave differently than, than I might have if I, if I wasn't thinking of these things quite often. But there's a, a deeper, richer uh, personal experience that comes, for example, um, when I I'm lucky enough to go on a meditation retreat or have, um, you know, longer periods of time in more contemplative states. And um, that always strikes me as a very interesting phenomenon of um, this incredible emotional richness that sort of bubbles to the surface um, and uh, in both positive and negative ways, um, you know, sadness and happiness are closer to the surface. Um, but even when the sadness is closer to the surface, um, 
it's it's often a, a feels like a really powerful positive thing, um, and so those deep moments of of extended contemplation um, really f- just feel like uh, to me like a, an opening up of this emotional life that often is numbed um, when it, when we're busy and and not attending to it. What are your thoughts on the implementation of mindfulness in grade school? Yeah, so there's a big movement to um, to implement. Uh, especially mindfulness in um, in in the K through 12 curriculum, um, and there is some good research indicating that it is helpful, especially with emotion regulation, um, social interactions for young children, um, and so I think that has a, a, a lot of potential. Um, and then we are looking at the possibility of incorporating um, some compassion-focused practices in K through 12. And it's striking how quickly children pick up on it, um, even faster often than adults do. Um, a lot of the examples and uh, exercises that uh, come with cognitively-based compassion training, kids pick up on it right away. And so I think it has a, a real powerful potential for uh, helping kids remain connected with one another um, and remain connected not with just with their close friends, but maybe with um uh, others that they may have trouble with, others that they um, may not see as one of them, all of a sudden become, you know, a shared hum- human, you know, with the, the shared childhood experience that they're going through. Um, and so I think there is a lot of potential. Do you know if there are any cultures out there that, that introduce children to meditation at, at, at a really young age? Monastic traditions are so rich and so different from one another, but there are a lot of monastic traditions where children... Um, go away quite young and, and begin a, a monastic lifestyle. Um, I'm a little hesitant because uh, there are a lot of monastic traditions that, um, you know, don't practice a lot of meditation. So there's a lot of diversity in terms of what um, goes on in different monastic traditions. But certainly um, there are a lot of traditions in which the training starts quite early. All right. Well, once again, I want to thank Dr. Mascaro for sitting down and chatting with me about uh, her meditation research and just meditation uh, research in general. I thought one thing that was really interesting was the uh, sort of the two-factor empathy model she mm-hmm. talked about. What are, what are your thoughts about that, Robert? Does that ring true to you in in your life? Like the idea that there is a cognitive component to empathy, and then the uh, the affective mirroring component of empathy. Yeah, like I say, it really made me tease apart my own experience with meditation, but also my own experience with, with, you know, things like empathy, like, you know, just how much of it, how much of column A, how much of column B, how is this coming together in my mind state and how might it be coming together differently or, or not at all in other mind states, you know, mm-hmm. because it's so easy to fall into the trap to think that we all have essentially the same hardware and software uh, firing up uh, every time we're engaging with the world. Do you ever think that if you are, if you happen to be a neurotypical person that like you can catch yourself having failings of empathy and that you're sometimes failing in one column and sometimes failing in the other column? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Cause I, I guess I'm paranoid enough that occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll think back on my day and uh, particularly I'll think about conversations and I'll wonder, well, did, was I, was I, did I have enough empathy in that particular conversation? Did yeah. I, did I talk too much about my own stuff? Did, did I, did I ask enough about someone else's stuff? Uh, you know, you can drive yourself nuts with those questions. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, and so now we have a whole other way to, to 
dive into that paranoid self-criticism. Exactly. All right. Well, I think we should do a quick break. And then when we come back from that break, we can talk about your conversation with Dr. Jill Weiner. So in working on the meditation video, I also interviewed Jill Weiner, uh, a phys- physician specializing in Vedic meditation for wellness and stress management. Uh, and she is also based here in Atlanta. Uh, she came in and she had a lot to share about the particular strategies of Vedic meditation, uh, mindfulness yoga, and the, the use of mantras. Uh, but but probably most importantly for our discussion here, she had a lot to say about stress. Mm-hmm. So she is a is an instructor of what she calls Vedic meditation, which from what I could tell is very similar to or maybe the same thing as transcendental meditation. Uh, yeah, it, it seems to it seem to be very too closely related um, uh, fields of meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, uh, it involves using mantras to achieve this state of transcendence. Yeah, I think that that, that sums it up. Uh, so we're not going to air the entire interview here with uh, with Jill, but I wanted to to just uh, air a portion of it because it, it sets uh, sets us up for a nice uh, discussion about uh, one particular quality of both Vedic meditation and uh, the the, uh, the the general science of stress. I think it's I think it's mandatory. I think that stress is probably the biggest epidemic we've ever faced. Um, it underlies everything. It underlies immune dysfunction, digest- digestive issues, pain regulation, all these medical issues that we see as physicians and as, as patients that we experience. And if we don't have a meditation practice to help us regulate the way our bodies process stress, we it, it's like you're, you can't ever catch up to it. The stress keeps accumulating and accumulating and making you sicker and sicker. So for me, as a healthcare provider, helping me be able to care for people, that having that the meditation as that personal practice for me was hugely important. But also as a human being who has stress and stress-related symptoms and illness, um, it also helps with that quite a bit. So adaptation energy, we like to think of it like your bank account of patients, uh, your ability to adapt. And what typically gives you adaptation energy is... Sleep, eating well, exercise, anything you find to be restorative, like working on cars or gardening or knitting or walking your dog. Um, when life throws you a little curveball, um, it takes away a little bit of adaptation energy. And if you have enough adaptation energy, you can handle anything that comes at you. What happens is we only have a certain amount, typically, and as it starts to run out, your patient runs a little thin and you feel a little, a little thready. And then one little thing happens. It doesn't seem like that big a deal and you lose it and you snap and have a full stress fight or flight reaction. So Vedic meditation and lots of other forms of meditation give you rest as well. So one of the key ideas that, uh, that Jill mentions here uh, and references a lot is that of adaptation energy. Mm-hmm. This concept that you have a, a personal de- uh, depletable energy reserve uh, for dealing with stress, a reserve that can be replenished as well as, uh, as diminished. And you, you see it referenced in meditation, and, and I think it's easy to simply dismiss something like that as just a meditation buzzword or something. But – when I started looking into it, like what what is adaptation energy? Does it does it exist outside of the um, the terminology of a particular school of meditation? Mm-hmm. It really gets quite 
fascinating. Okay. So the term originates with Austrian endocrinologist Hans Selye, uh, which I imagine a, a number of people may be familiar with that name because he is he is a huge name in the science of stress, just the understanding of stress, the the cultural use of the word stress today. Well, he sort of – I mean I imagine that stress was just a concept that had always been around, but he – pretty much introduced the modern medical concept of stress, right? Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to imagine that right now to, to think back. You know, you think back on even ancient figures, you can imagine uh, Odysseus saying, oh, man, this is such a stressful voyage home. I'm just so stressed out. I can't wait to, to get get home and just relax. No, you know? they, they talked about like uh, wearisomeness and anguish, mm-hmm. but they didn't talk about stress. <laughs> it's true. So, yeah, in, in 1935, he identified stress as a syndrome occurring in laboratory rats. And in 1938, he defined general adaptation syndrome, uh, which is also known as, as GAS or GAS. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I've seen some commentators Say that that is this, you know rather unfortunate uh, that that that's uh, what what one can refer to it as. Uh, but uh, he signaled this out as a three stage biological response to stress. So the the the, the three stages are as follows: uh, first, alarm. Uh, this occurs when you encounter stress. The, uh, the also known as the alarm reaction stage, the AR stage, and it includes the arousal of your fight or flight response to a stressor, and all of your internal alarms are activated and you prepare to face danger or run away. Mm-hmm. And then he lays out the second stage, the resistance stage, the stage of resistance, or SR. And in this, uh, the human response to danger is in full swing. So your pupils dilate, your heart rate and respiration go up, and your muscles contract. And then where you really get into the uh, the general adaptation syndrome here is a third stage of exhaustion. This is when your body stays in an excited state for a prolonged period. It enters a f- the, the final state of, of the gas, uh, the state of exhaustion, or SE. And uh, this, is, this occurs when in response to a stressor that has gone on too long. In this state of hyperarousal, the body's immune system begins to wear down, and as a result, the person will become more susceptible to infections and other illnesses as the body's defenses have been spent on dealing with the stressor. Hmm. So one interesting way I, I read to think about stress is that you think about a disease or an injury or something like that causing symptoms. Mm-hmm. You know, there there are symptoms that result from some type of damage to or pressure upon the body. Yeah. But there are also these general symptoms that seem to happen basically no matter what you're doing to the body as long as it's having some kind of cumulative negative effect. Yeah. So like whether it's something – whether you're tired and deprived of sleep or infected by a, a disease or you have gotten a bodily injury or you know any number of things that could happen to you. They all seem to sort of lead to this similar cluster of symptoms. And so you could think – one way to think about stress is the body's general response to negativity. Yeah. And I mean, and I guess the other side of it too to consider with stress is that a lot of – like the basic – evolved biological adaptations you know we we weren't we were we evolved to deal with tigers mm-hmm. essentially but not paper tigers so much and that's one yeah. of the the problems with the modern world right is that we 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 get so stressed out over things that are not actual immediate threats mm-hmm. 
but uh, they, they but they never go away. Yeah, they never go away. They're constantly coming at you. Uh, so you can definitely see the the modern application of this uh, this idea, this general adaptation syndrome, and the idea that you would have only so much like bodily and mentally ener- mental energy to deal with a barrage of stressors. Yeah, and Selye he did sort of have an idea that there were that this was a modern problem in a way, right? Yeah, like. So you could imagine maybe our ancestors living living on a savanna somewhere would have a fight or flight response if like a you know a large uh, leopard comes near them or something mm-hmm. you know you you that's like an immediate stress point that you've got to deal with but what if it's like you have put yourself into a state of being where you're almost never facing actual acute danger but your entire life there's a, a leopard over there on the horizon yeah and it never gets too close to you but it also never goes away yeah it's always potentially in your email uh folder it's always potentially in your mailbox yeah or on your doorstep i mean it's yeah it's uh this is this is the paper tiger that we've we've grown accustomed to or haven't grown accustomed to, if you rather. So one of the interesting things about uh, Selye's work is is that the modern use of the word stress stems from his work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, his findings that were rejected by physiologists until the 1970s, as uh, Russell Viner put uh, put it in his uh, uh, his paper, putting stress in life, Hans Selye in the making of stress theory. Uh, Selye used stress to describe an organism's adaptation response to the environment, quote, that is the state manifested by the gas. In this reconceptualization of stress, Selye believed himself to have discovered a universal truth regarding the relationships of organisms with their environment. Hmm. And he also pointed out that Selye had some pretty lofty ideas ab- about his stress theory, uh, d- that civilization was d- disordered on two vital levels. The, quote, diseases of civilization, such as cardiovascular diseases, these were caused by poor adaptation to modern industrial life. And on another level entirely, he, he saw that Western civilization bore the cracks of intense social instability. And stress theory, he argued, could save us from both of these. Mm. So he was, he was not shy about championing uh, stress theory. Right. Now, according to Viner, uh, the U.S. military uh, were among the first to really embrace his ideas on stress and operational efficiency in the post-war period. And that they somehow doesn't surprise me. Yeah, they they jumped right in there. It fall, does fall in line with a lot of the the recent topics we've covered uh, related to Cold War uh, yeah. research. Yeah, like mid mid century military research went into a lot of fringe territory. Though I guess this is one that eventually became mainstream science. Yeah, because on one hand, there's you want to know how your troops are going to behave in a stressful situation. But they also considered stress a useful weapon in potential psychological warfare uh, based on his work and the work of others. Uh, in, in fact, uh, Viner says, quote, the military's fascination with stress became such that by 1976, over one third of prominent researchers in the stress area were based in U.S. military institutions. Huh. So it's it's no surprise then, I suppose, that uh, one of the papers that I found on adaptation energy came from a 2009 issue of the FBI Law Enforcement Bulletin (laughs) titled, alarmingly enough, On the Edge, colon, uh, Integrating Spirituality into Law Enforcement. Ooh. Yeah. 
Did you read it? I mean, what kind of a read is this? Um, it was an interesting read. I just, it may, basically just made me, I just kept coming back and saying, wait, is this the real FBI Bolton? Is this yeah. something else? Does FBI stand for something other than uh, Federal Bureau of Investigation? Because it's certainly, it, it's certainly interesting to, to, to see this article in an FBI publication after watching, um, Mind Hunters, uh, which yeah. of course displays a, Sort of the, oh, the, the old school FBI. Yeah, the Netflix series Mindhunter. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah the, the old school FBI of the uh, the the sixties and seventies, like entering into a new um, a new age that is open to psychological science. Yeah, and you but you can find that article if anyone wants to read it for themselves. You can find that online. It's by uh, Inese Tuck. But uh, the concept of um, of, of adaptation, energy, and, and stress. Uh, this was also embraced by transcendental meditation to bring us back to right. meditation. And Selier himself became interested in the use of transcendental meditation as a stress management method. After meeting with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of the transcendental meditation movement in the 1970s, uh, something that he discussed uh, in later interviews. Interesting. Now, adaptation energy itself remains hypothetical, but uh, many scientific studies surrounding meditation uh, relate to the uh, physiological effects of stress. Yeah, I was thinking when listening to... uh Dr. Weiner's interview that even if the adaptation energy theory is not, um, how to put it, if it's not literally correct in that you have some kind of fixed number of reserves that are depleted, mm-hmm. I think it could be, could be very uh, easily an analogy for something that is very true of the body, which is that there is such a thing as cumulative stress. You might not have uh, a number that could be measured and that can be built up and stuff like that, but there are cumulative effects of stress and it can behave sort of analogously to what she describes. Yeah. I mean, you can think of it just like how many times would you need to be, say, reminded of something stressful in your life? How many times would you, or you, would you need to have someone jump out at you mm-hmm. and scare you before it would begin to wear you down, you know? Yeah. Just in the course of a day. Right. And therefore, it might be useful to find a room where nobody jumps out at you or nobody shouts uh, something stressful at you. Uh-huh. And of course, for the most part, we don't we don't even have to rely on someone else to jump out or someone else to yell something stressful because we have the uh, this wonderful dialogue that's going on in our yeah. minds most of the time. Uh, and the email leopard. And the, and the email leopard as well. But yeah, we have the default mode network in our mind constantly fretting over past and future. It's it's shutting off that voice. It's finding a room where that voice cannot reach us that that has value. Yeah. And that's where meditation comes in. Yeah. And I can certainly believe also that meditative practices could increase one's resistance to uh, to to these stressors as they come at you, even after you've stopped practicing it for the moment. Indeed. Now, for this episode, thanks, as always, to Alexander Williams for running the boards on this one. And thanks to Tyler Klang and Tari Harrison, who also came up with a couple of the questions that we used uh, in the interview with Mascaro. Uh, thanks, of course, to Dr. Jennifer Mascaro uh, for talking with us and to Dr. Jill Wiener. And by the way, if you want to check out uh, Dr. Jill Wiener's work, you can head on over to uh, jillwiener.com. That's W-E-N-E-R. And if you want to check out our work here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes, as well as links out to our various social media accounts. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. Hold up. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.